I'm the only person in the Philadelphia area in my company. And if you look at our Google call logs and you took out my name and my email address, you're like, this person's calling in from Philadelphia. I'd be like, well, that's John. Like, there he is. How do you mitigate that? That becomes a really challenging problem. And so our, what our synthetic data capability does is goes in and builds a machine learning model on the original data, at which point you can throw out the original data and then you can use that model to create records that look and feel like the original records and then we have a bunch of post-processing that removes outliers or overly similar records and what we call privacy filtering. So it's kind of like the, the easy button, although it's not so easy, <laughs> but we, we want to make it easy to the developers to use. Stop overpaying for big tech cloud. Vulture offers powerful cloud compute and bare metal at a fraction of the cost. Visit Vulture, V-U-L-T-R dot com slash stack to redeem $100 in credit today. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, the director of content here at Stack Overflow, and I am joined today, as I often am, by my terrific co-hosts, Cassidy Williams and Ryan Donovan. How's it going, y'all? Glad to be here. Hey, Ben. How you doing? So let's put this out there. Before today, before we set up for this podcast, have either of you heard of privacy engineering? I have heard of it. I've heard some talks given around it. Not so much privacy engineering as it is like figuring out how to privatize your code because everybody has a fingerprint on the internet and and fingerprint way of doing things. And I saw a really interesting talk once about how someone was able to determine who was coding a particular code sample based on the style of code. Simple examples like, do they put spaces around parentheses or put a curly bracket on another line? But it, it got much more deep into coding styles and her research was all around how to anonymize your code a bit more. Yeah, we we published a blog post a while back about why your privacy should shift left into the uh, software engineering cycle. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. I feel like we've had a bunch of conversations on the podcast about how these days, even at sort of almost the MVP level, you are worrying about things to do with consumer privacy and data, especially around GDPR, and how you help people auth in or log in and keep a password or share some of their data with you without compromising you know, your users in some way and having that come back to bite you. All right, well, let's get into the meat of the episode. Our guest today is John Myers, who is CTO and co-founder at Gretel.ai, an organization, a company that specializes in privacy engineering. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So how would you define at a high level what privacy engineering is all about? And tell us a little bit about how you ended up in the the gig you're at right now. Sure. Yeah. So to summarize what I see privacy engineering as, you know, I I came from a background of doing a lot of data engineering and I view it as kind of an extension of that where as part of doing what you would normally do in data engineering, whether it's like ETL or doing some type of enrichment or modification to the data, you need to really consider what types of steps you need to take to make the data safe from a privacy perspective. You know, I've spent my entire career career building a variety of data pipelines, mostly for, you know, some end state where you're trying to do some analysis on it. 
And oftentimes I found myself spending more time figuring out how to make the data safe to insert into some downstream data storage that was going to be queried by you know, a whole different user base. I'd say most of the people at Gretel have a similar story. And you know, as an engineer myself, I never really found tools that could do it. Or if I did find tools, they were pretty scattered across different places, right? Like I would have to go use some library to do one thing and another library to do another thing and nothing was really unified together. So when we launched Gretel, we said, what if we took like all these capabilities, like put them behind a singular set of APIs with like a very you know similar developer experience so that you don't have to go reach out to six different vendors to do what is basically a related task of taking data and making it safe to share. How do you make it safe to share? Yeah, so we have kind of a buffet of capabilities. So I would say we start off with a couple of tools that we consider to be table stakes. So some of the capabilities we have focus around the ability to detect sensitive information in data sets. And then after you can detect it, you can apply various transforms to it. Those capabilities are out there. It's basically an area known as like data loss prevention. There's a lot of APIs that are baked into different cloud vendors for that, like AWS has one, Google has one, Azure has one. You basically have to be in their ecosystem to use them. And then there's a bunch of vendors uh, standalone that you can install into your ecosystem, but they're really designed to work at a high level. Like they're either doing some type of like data governance type of function where they're trying to just identify like, and create pointers to where you have sensitive information. What really we wanted to do was kind of bring that down to a lower level and enable developers to actually execute those types of tasks directly in their workflows, whether it's CICD or some type of ETL process. So that's one of the big capabilities that we have. And that gives you a lot of flexibility to identify what I would call like discrete privacy risks, right? If you have phone numbers or email addresses or addresses, stuff like that, you can detect those. And then you can apply a variety of transforms to it, tokenization, encryption. You can do partial redaction. We have a capability to do like a, a surrogate replacement with a fake value that maintains consistent across the data set. You could do a lot of that relative to other foreign keys in the data. And then we kind of move up in complexity from that into what we call synthetic data, where you might not know all the risks that are within your data set. So outside of having those types of discrete risks where you have all those identifiers to individuals, there's a whole myriad of risks around like re-identification attacks and aggregate risks and being able to you know identify someone just because I'm the only person in the Philadelphia area in my company. And if you look at our Google call logs and you took out my name and my email address, you're gonna be like, this person's calling in from Philadelphia. I'd be like, well, that's John. Like, there he is. How do you mitigate that? That becomes a really challenging problem. And so our, what our synthetic data capability does is goes in and builds a machine learning model on the original data, at which point you can throw out the original data and then you can use that model to create records that look and feel like the original records. And then we have a bunch of post-processing that removes outliers or overly similar records and what we call privacy filtering. So it's kind of like the the easy button, although it's not so easy, <laughs> but we, we want to make it easy to the developers to use. But under the hood, we have a whole bunch of complex things going on that have been developed by our ML team. And then we've you know put it into our actual API ecosystem. And that's really kind of where we're going with it is how do you make it so developers don't necessarily have to go through this like discrete identification process and know what's exactly what's in their data and have to be like experts in the schema. That's amazing. And I feel like it's something that 
when you describe it, it totally makes sense that something like this needs to exist for developers to maintain that level of privacy. But it feels like it's something that not enough people are aware of. Like this is a really cool application of machine learning, but I would suspect there's going to be some folks who look at this and say, oh, this is a over-engineered solution, right? For data privacy. Maybe. Yeah. I'm putting an extension on my deck and they said it was over-engineered. I was like, what does that mean? And they're like, well, it won't ever fall down. That's good. So I don't know if that's a problem. (laughs) Right. It costs you a little money, but uh, it won't ever break on you. And I think uh, the, the fact that you're creating statistically similar data that is usable is fascinating. And then I think there was one of the um, things you sent over talked about a particular attack that could be performed on either the hash data or real data. Yeah, it might be like a, I don't know if it was like one of the model inference attacks or just a re-identification attack that you can run on on data. Both of those are you know, basically using different properties of the data set to piece, you basically take two or three other columns and you're basically recreating the same statistical like relevance as my name in a data set, right? There's a study out there. I can't remember who it was from, but, you know, they say given like, you know, even like a zip code and a gender or some other characteristic, you can get close to 80% of just identifying a singular person through that. So that's one of the things that it's really hard to figure that out like from a brute force attempt on, on a data, because if you have highly dimensional data, that's really big. You're going to run out of resources trying to find all the permutations of columns that allow you to do that type of inference. So on the synthetic data side, you know, we have different privacy levers you can pull from differential privacy to privacy filtering to injecting additional types of noise into the data that kind of takes care of that for you without having to run those exhaustive types of like searches on the data set. Let me ask the, the dumb questions. I guess before I do that, let me say one thing, which is Cassidy reminded me he's talking about spaces versus tabs and a curly bracket. You know, that would identify somebody's code. And what you were just saying about how you could de-anonymize somebody with a few simple traits that you might peer at, a zip code, a gender, and an age. And from there, you're going to work back and figure out that person's name and social security number. I remember reading a story once about this, and it was about things that I don't usually think about, but that make a lot of sense. It was like, they look at what browser you use and what size your screen is. And then, you know, they know that you end up at this GPS point and that GPS point every day because you're going wow. to and from work. And from there, boom, it's like trivial to own you and have everything that, you know, they could, they know who you are and they can probably even open up some of your less well-protected accounts, right? Because they've got your name, your address and a bunch of other stuff. So yeah, this stupid question I wanted to ask was, if you create synthetic data, you mentioned you can throw away the other stuff. But if you need the original data, how do you work backwards when you want to, you know, like reach out to the customer with some of that identifying stuff, their phone number, their address, like the synthetic data, I can understand how it would let you identify them as a person and therefore work with them on a bunch of different you know, areas. But how can you throw out the original and then just work from the synthetic? Are there, are there not things in the original that are of value to you that the customer or the user has given? No, what I meant when I throw it out, meaning you don't need the original data to then go ahead and create the new safe versions of it because the model is going to take care of that for you. Gotcha. You know, what we recommend and to kind of, you know, bleed into a little bit how you talk about operationalization of this and CICD and data pipelines. What we recommend is you basically want to get as close to the data creation as possible, right? So for argument's sake, let's say you have a a stream of records and that stream is like, you know, the ground truth, right? That's like the first stop where let's say a transaction record falls into at that point, you want to probably start capturing some of that real data and create, start creating your safe version of it, whether you're going to do transforms or synthetics or whatever. And then 
you can keep a copy of that somewhere. And that repository of that synthetic data is probably the one you want to start forking the data from when people start coming to you and be like, hey, can you dump a, a table from two weeks ago? Because we want to send it to the biz analysts to do something with, right? That's You just want to pull from that table because you know it's already safe and it's good to go from there. The original data should stay behind some you know, really big vault, you know, so to speak, with <laughs> a key and only have access to who needs it. Because most and a lot of other Industries are going to require that for compliance or legal or FBI comes knocking for one reason or another. Like you can't just be like, cool, here's a bunch of synthetic data. They, they will need the real data. But for the, the use case where you want to just share that data for collaboration or you want to share it, especially over with teams that are doing like machine learning and data science on it. Right. Most of the time that data is more valuable in aggregate than it is knowing I need to know who made this purchase exactly because they're going to go to jail, right? Like most companies aren't doing that. That's a right. that's an edge case that you have to still retain that original data for. Right. I'm on the data privacy team, the privacy engineering team. We've got a lot of customers and they've shared with us their credit card and address and phone number. But we've also got all their user metrics and we want to send that over to a team that's going to look at that user behavior and use that to make good product decisions. We synthesize the stuff we don't want need them to see. We send over the stuff they do want to see. Now they get the value without the privacy risk. Right. Yeah. And in our experiments and our customers have given us exact feedback too. You know, we've had folks that have taken whatever their data is, they created a machine learning model on it because they want to predict a user behavior, they want to predict something, and they have okay, whatever accuracy of that model. And they put that same original data set through Gretel, they take the synthetic data set, train the same exact machine learning model, same outcome. Right. So Really, what you can do there is you can you can build a machine learning model on synthetic data, take that model, put it back over like that safe like firewall, so to speak, and then start running on your production data. You get the same output because most times the data owners are not the ones that are doing that heavy machine learning work. It's usually got to get that data over to an ML team, sometimes even a third party if you're a small business, right? Like you're going to bring on a company that has expertise in doing machine learning, and so. Do you really want to give them all that sensitive information that they don't even need access to, right? That's one of the biggest use cases we see for the ML side of the house. When you're generating all of this synthetic data, how do you measure the quality of it? How, how are you confident to be able to say like this data set gives you the same value as the original? Yeah, so when the, the data gets created, well, when the model gets created, we generate a sample of data. We use that data immediately compared against the training set. And we have this whole synthetic quality report that comes out and it shows you the breakdown of how well the distributions in a field hold up, the correlations across the field. We do other checks like principal component analysis to kind of look at like underlying structures. And then we also have a bunch of things that run that do semantic validation on the data set. Those are kind of guarantees you get that don't have to be analyzed. So like a whole column of names you know, we'll identify what the character set is, right? Like only these letters are used, these numbers are used. We'll make sure that those only come out so you don't get like the O and John and then the zero, <laughs> right? Like you don't want that to happen. So we enforce that type of thing. <laughs> and so that report comes out and then they can basically look at that report and they'll know, okay, based off of the report, we kind of have a spectrum and we say, well, if your score is this good and excellent, you can probably use this data for the exactly exact same thing you're going to do with, the original data, like train a machine learning model of it's kind of like the highest level of like proof that the data was good quality. Now, if you start turning on like the privacy knobs, and that's the thing is you have utility versus privacy, and that's kind of a trade-off, right? If you if you say I want maximum privacy, we're going to filter out all the outliers, or we're going to filter out similar 
record and we're going to do it like very aggressively, you might not get the utility you're looking for. But some companies are just looking for the data to kind of look the same because they want to use it for demo data if you're testing like a user interface, right? Like I don't care if it's statistically sound, but I just need the first names to look like first names. You know, I need the snozzberries to taste like snozzberries. And <laughs> but again, if you're going to share that data for a demo, you really just want to turn up the privacy filter as much as you can. So you have those capabilities before you start training, and then the report will tell you here's what you should use the data for, and here's what you shouldn't use the data for. So once you learn how to do this, if you saw great results, could you then build me some sort of procedurally generated engine that just creates new new fake customers, which are equally believable as as the existing customers? Yeah, so that's kind of like on our roadmap for this year is now that we have that ability, do we have the ability to go from a cold start, basically, is can someone come in and be like, I'm a bank, right? And all banks kind of adhere, their transactions look the same, doesn't matter if you're like a Visa or a MasterCard, right? They're all have the same like, you know, schema. Can you just generate me transactions that are common in the Northeast side of the United States around the holidays? You know, we should have that ability then to basically generate those from scratch, either from a pre-learned model or some kind of underlying semantics we've learned from data sets. So that's that's actually in our roadmap for this year is to be able to kind of do that so people can come in and just describe the data they want and then they get it back. Oh, great. Well, you should hire me to be on the R&D team because I thought <laughs> of that just now. Uh-huh. Yeah. So when it comes to the creation of the data kind of blows my mind. Like it, it makes sense from a theoretical perspective, but... You've talked about measuring the quality of it. How do you ensure that like privacy is still maintained now that the data has been created and is so high quality that it could be used the same way? Like what what are the best practices around that? Yeah, so there's a, a couple of different capabilities we have around that. What we're finding more and more is that customers are actually combining a lot of our capabilities to start with. So, you know, previously I mentioned we have this capability to do PII detection and what I would call like more discrete transforms on the data. And sometimes it's really safe just to go ahead and make take a pass with that before you even train a synthetic model. So for example, if you have like time series data, right, and it's heavily dependent on, you know, some point in time and some measured value, you could go ahead and say, hey, before you even train a synthetic model, go ahead and apply, you know, we have like a date shift transform that will apply like some date shift within some window, call it plus or minus five days go ahead and do that first because then when the model learns on that, it's going to learn the kind of semantics of those shifted dates. And so it reduces the risk of it memorizing, you know, some dates that were in the training model, you know, go ahead and take all the names and replace them with fake names before you, before you train the synthetic model, you basically helps reduce the risk of the model memorizing yeah. anything. And meanwhile, all the numerical data, all the correlated data is still held when you do it that way. And there's a whole bunch of hyperparameters on the machine learning model that you can tune as well on how much it should like learn. And then that will kind of control like how much I'll say like variance gets injected when you start creating it. So there's like on the underlying machine learning model, which, you know, I'm not the expert in, right? I'm, I'm kind of on the service delivery side, but you can turn a lot of those knobs to kind of control the data output. And then finally, there's another stage that we call privacy filtering that you can set to a bunch of different settings that specifically look for outliers in the data set. So when the synthetic data gets created, uh, if there's any outliers, you by default, you kind of just want to throw them out, right? So if you have outliers in your training set, it's going to learn those and recreate those. And so, you know, it still might create some records for someone who's in Philadelphia, and that's me. 
sometimes you just got to remove those records from the data set because there's no other way to sure. avoid that. You know, there's only one person in this remote location. So all those knobs can be tuned by the customer based off of what, like what level of privacy they need. And that kind of maps to like what level of sharing you're going to, going to do with it. Right. Like, Hey, are you just really going to share this inside of your organization or are you actually going to try to like send this outside of your organization because you're sharing it to a third party or a vendor? You know, we've worked with like volunteer organizations that are getting data from companies. If you're going to share it with them, you, you probably want to make, you know, err on the side of precaution and use like a higher privacy setting there. That makes sense. So uh, you talked about transforming the data. So does this all happen within the sort of ETL pipeline or happen kind of at various stages? We would recommend that it would happen like right as part of like the Gretel stage in your in your pipeline. So Gretel would be kind of like a bump in the line of your data pipeline or your CI/CD process. We're a job-based system, so that's kind of the way the system works. So it would just be like two Gretel jobs. The first job would do some transform. The output from that would go into the synthetic job, and then the output from that would be your synthetic data. And can you tell us a little bit about sort of like what the tech stack is that you work with? I was going to ask that next too. I'm so curious. <laughs> so we are, we run as a service, so a SaaS model. So the entire stack is running on AWS and it's a job-based system. So if you use like an Apache Spark or something like that, you're, you know, you're basically starting a job and then that job consumes an input data set, a configuration file, does its thing, and then kicks out a bunch of artifacts, right? Uh, the synthetic data the report that you get, all that. Our API and our console and our CLI are like kind of the interfaces into the system. You know, through our API, it's more of an orchestration API. So you request that a job can get started. And then once you get like authorization to run that job, you can start the job either in our cloud or you can start the job yourself. If you start the job yourself, you can actually just run a Docker container that takes in all your data. That Docker container still sends information to our API just basically like when the job started, when it stopped, are there any errors? And that's so we can kind of use it as like a billing and metering mechanism. If you choose to run the job in our cloud, we basically do the same thing. We have a managed Kubernetes cluster that runs all the containers for you. Our containers don't know like where they're living. They just know that they're starting up and they're getting some metadata from our API. Then they start their work and they're saying, hey, when you're done, drop your output data either on a volume mount, like if I'm running in like my own VPC, or upload those artifacts back into Gretel Cloud and the customer can download them. Yeah, so tech stacks on AWS, we pretty much rely on a lot of the serverless capabilities from AWS on the back end to do all that. We manage a big Kubernetes cluster, which does our, our cloud runners for our, our customers if they want to route on our compute, which is helpful because on the synthetic side, you have to, you have to run with a GPU support and even just getting like a deep learning setup like configured is a royal pain. So we kind of take care of that for the customers. For customers like enterprises that run on-prem, all they really need to do is configure some compute, you know, that can run Docker containers and you can use our CLI and our CLI will like launch the containers for you on your behalf and all that. But our cloud system is really just like this big control plane that manages the jobs. How do you uh, protect the data, whether it's in transit or on your servers? Yeah, so, I mean, all remote communications through our cloud is TLS 1.2 and above. Any kind of data that gets sent to us by a customer to process is encrypted in transit and then encrypted at rest and only accessible through that customer via their API key. It's upload and download. We don't really hold on to much. We're, we're kind of an ephemeral system, like data in, data out. We expect 
the users to download the data out of our cloud. We don't we don't recommend that they store it up there, and that's really just it helps minimize like cost. You know, we're not we're not a remote S three service for them. So basically, if you upload a data set to us, we process it. If you use a lot of our SDKs and our tutorials, we'll end up just deleting the data you sent us as soon as it's done, and we expect or recommend that you download your results right through it. Really, our cloud is just a way for you not to have to like manage your own compute and scale your own compute. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. I'm going to shout out the winner of a lifeboat badge who came on Stack Overflow and helped rescue a question from the dustbin of history awarded five hours ago to 1983. Oh, same year I was born. Why can't I use the new with the arrow function in JavaScript ES6? All right, we've got an answer for you. And we have people on Stack Overflow who've been answering this question in a duplicate for the last five years. So appreciate your help there. I'm Ben Popper, the director of content at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us podcast at stackoverflow.com. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. Really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. I'm on Twitter at Arthur Donovan. And if you have a great idea for a blog post, please email me at pitches at stackoverflow.com. I'm Cassidy Williams. I'm head of developer experience and education at Remote. You can find me at Cassidy, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O on most things. And John, tell us who you are, where you can be found, if you'd like to be found. If you, if you <laughs> want to find the synthetic John, that's also okay. The real John or the synthetic John. And then if folks are interested in Gretel, where should they go to check it out? Again, thanks for having me on the show. My name is John Myers. Uh, I can be found on uh, Twitter sometimes, <laughs> JTM underscore tech. Other than that, you know, I'm easily reachable at Gretel. Anyone can ever always reach out to us. Check out our homepage at Gretel.ai. We are hiring like crazy for all roles imaginable, engineering, machine learning, marketing, product, sales, you name it. Or you can always reach out to us at hi at Gretel.ai. Yes, that still comes to me and the other co-founders. So chances are one of us will answer you and it will not be a synthetic version. <laughs> Maybe. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.